God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word and we're grateful for the company we have in each other, people who have sought you and desire to please you. We'd ask that you would help us understand our faith. In your son's name, amen. I have a group of passages that we're looking at this morning, a couple out of Acts and one out of John and one out of Galatians. And you're familiar with the one out of Galatians, probably most of all, where St. Paul says here at the top of the left-hand column, Now the works of the flesh are plain. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, and party spirit. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now you're familiar with that passage, the fruit of the Spirit. You may even have a poster in your house or apartment that lists the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the more amazing ancient statements because we're used to it in the Bible, but this is 2,000 years ago. This, this kind of summing up of goodness is so remarkable in antiquity. And you also noticed as we read through it that the pastor, Evan, had bolded the word self-control. And you said to yourself, why did he do that? I hope you said, I hope you're paying attention. Why did he do that? Because that's the one we always ignore. And so I want to think a little bit about ignoring such a thing. Uh, you, you like thinking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Self-control you know, is sort of like a dead weight you threw right at the end of the list and said, oh, yeah, self-control. Now, when we ignore something like this, sometimes we, we can go do it without harm. We, we don't necessarily find ourselves as we labor to be loving, joyful, peaceful, and patient, that the lack of concentration on self-control isn't really that much of a problem. Now, one thing you need to think about philosophically is if you were to say, hmm, I wonder why self-control is on the list. I mean, St. Paul's making this amazing list of ethics for the early church based on attitudes, and he throws in self-control. Well, you know, on one hand, self-control is the measure by which you know you're human. However, you, much you, animals don't control themselves. Self-control. But it's also, morally, the ground of all good and evil. Because moral government, your choice to control or not control, is the, is the ground of you 
doing bad or doing good. You had to be controlling it. If someone else makes you do something, not your fault. If I grab you after the service and I grab your fist and hit somebody else in the church with the fist that I grabbed of yours, I am the one controlling it. You're just the ones completely surprised that the illustration had gone that crazy. Whoever is controlling the situation is responsible for the situation. So you know it's the center, a centerpiece of ethics, and already we're a little bit maybe concerned that we had ignored this last of the fruit of the Spirit so many years in our Christian lives. Now I didn't think of this Galatians, I mean everybody can make a sermon standing on their head out of Galatians 5. What I was looking at was the Acts 24 passage, which is of course the Acts of the Apostles. And I wanted, this is where it came to my mind, was reading through this passage. Now, the situation is, Paul has been arrested. Uh, in Jerusalem, he's been transferred down to um, Caesarea. Let's see. And uh, the Romans had had to arrest him because the Jews were getting really uptight. He had caused a riot in Jerusalem. And so now the Jews had come down to Caesarea about five days later, it says at the beginning of the chapter, and to, to have their lawyers make their case against St. Paul to the Roman authorities. I left that out mostly because it would have been good to have the context, but we weren't talking about what they said, and I ran out of room. So I trimmed them off for the first nine verses of the chapter, but... They're making a case that the Romans should look into this problematic guy. And, and uh, so the governor, who was Portius Festus, uh, Felix, Portius Felix, um, turns and verse 10 says, And when the governor had motioned to him to speak, Paul replied. So we're stepping in. After the accusations of the Jews, Paul is making his defense and response. Realize it says Paul, that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. As you may ascertain, it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship at Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you the, what they now bring up against me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law or written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men. You can see as he's talking to a pagan who's informed about these things already. He's been a governor for a while. And the Jews, he says, I believe everything in the Old Testament. And what we all agree, that there is a resurrection. And so he lays the groundwork that we as Christians see as the groundwork of the gospel in this statement. According to the way, what the Christians think, I worship the Jewish God, believing everything the prophet said, and hoping 
in the resurrection, so I watch my own morality. I take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men. Now I want you to be thinking of how central what I read out of Galatians when we talk about self-control. Being a moral ground because it is the ground philosophically of moral government. You have to choose to be moral. To have it be a moral agency, you have to be controlling. And so he's already said, I take great pains to guard my conscience, have a clear conscience. Verse 17. Now, after some years, I came to bring to my nation alms and offerings as I was doing this. They found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they thought they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation if they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council except this one thing which I cried out while standing among them. With respect to the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you this day. Now, if you went back and Acts to that moment where he said that, it was after Paul had realized that the audience of the Sanhedrin he was in front of was split between Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees do. Okay? As soon as he, and he was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. And so he said, it's over the resurrection of the dead that I'm on this trial. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are on Paul's side. And I don't know how much you realize what the Middle East is like. Okay? You know what you see in the, the videos on TV about people just getting wacky? It was always that way. I don't know if you knew that the Crimean War was started. That's the Charge of the Light Brigade War up in the Crimea. Over a fist fight in Bethlehem between two groups of monks. Wars foment here. People get a little unglued. And Paul admits that, yeah, I, I said that. But it was about the resurrection of the dead, which... He was on trial for respect to the resurrection of the dead. Now, you know, you've heard, you're Christians, right? You got Easter eggs when you were little. So, you know, the resurrection. First, there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then there's the resurrection of everybody from the dead. So, mm, yes, it's part of our fairy tale. It may be the fairy tale you believe. Well, one of the problems when we ignore or even think we didn't because we have bunnies and eggs and a lot of chocolate and candy corn. Is it candy corn? What's that Easter? Just chocolate eggs, right? Jelly beans. Okay. Make sure all the religious things are present in your home. The jelly beans. And you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important to you. But I'm, I want you to think about it for a second, because we, we, all the fruit of the Spirit should be important to us, but we, we sort of push self-control off to the side and say, it's not even, it doesn't even sound poetic. Self-control. You, know exactly, you can argue over what love means, right? 
and you probably have. What does love really mean? What does self-control mean? I know exactly what it means. So shut up. We know what self-control means. And then we get to the resurrection and we treat the resurrection as if it were the Christian magic trick that we're all supposed to believe in. It's the miracle we all have to believe in that it happened to Jesus and will happen to you after you die. Okay? So it's not like you're a Pentecostal or something where you have to believe that the pastor can raise the dead or make the lame walk. It's not like there's a, a, a measure of your um, stretching your faith to things that you can check right now. So you, you happily go, okay, yeah, it's the magic ring. It's the fairy tale that I am going to affirm is true. I'm going to insist that it's true. I will get into fights over the resurrection. But I think we miss something. But Felix, verse 22, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Did you ever wish that Christianity was still called the way? The problem is there's a cult called the way. So don't try it. I mean, they swiped it. Victor Paul Wirewheel, the way international out of the Midwest. He wrote a book called Jesus Christ is Not God. That was the title of the book. So, yeah, they're a cult. But Felix knew about it. Portia Felix knew about this way. And he had been examining it. He's curious about it. He put them off, saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but should have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, the Romans are nice guys. Their legal system is actually pretty good, fair. Roman citizen that Paul was, he got these benefits, and yeah, your house, house arrest, your friends can bring you lunch. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak upon faith in Christ Jesus. This Drusilla is of the Herodian family. Okay? She's Bernice's sister, who shows up in the next few chapters with Agrippa. But Felix is married to one of these sisters. And so the Jewish wife and the Roman governor who knows about Christianity and knows the claims has a private audience with Paul about Jesus Christ. But I want you to look here. This is what stood out to me. Verse 25. And as he argued about justice and self-control and future judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I have an opportunity, I will summon you. When Paul is talking, it's a synonymous remark. Speaking of faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, 
was equivalent to arguing over justice, self-control, and future judgment. Not creationism, which is fine to argue over, or determinism, which is fine to argue over. Anything is fine to argue over. But don't argue over even the deity of Christ in this passage. It's just justice, self-control, and future judgment. Those are pretty, they're a group. They all go together. Because morality exists because you are expected to have self-control. Justice must be done. And if not done, there is no obligation to be good in the first place. There's no obligation to be good. It's just one opinion versus another. If there is no future judgment, there, why, why do anything right? Other than keeping people out of your business. And it's no wonder that Felix is alarmed. He's hearing... He's hearing the centerpiece of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is about righteousness and the judgment. And instead of just being a resurrection that is the fairy tale that we attach to the end of our belief system and saying, yeah, and we believe we'll live forever in heaven by that rim shot. The resurrection, when Paul thinks of it, is the afterlife, future judgment, accounting for what you did. And that's why he takes pains to have a clear conscience before God. It's why Felix wished he had taken pains to have a clear conscience, because Paul was talking to him about self-control. Because when you haven't been self-controlled, and you know, it's your own dang fault. The future judgment... It's an uncomfortable subject. Of course it's alarming. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him out often and conversed with him. But when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, pardon for that um, word break problem there. Doing the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. I've been calling Felix, Portius Felix. It's the the text. It's Portius Festus. Sounded right at the beginning and I was wrong to change it. So go back and re reconfigure all the comments. Take the name. I don't know what Felix's first name was. Or, obviously. But I think it's important that you see what this conversation was like when Paul had the opportunity to sit down with the Jewish wife and the Roman governor talking philosophically about religious questions they both understood. This is Paul's choice to cover. Justice, self-control, future judgment. Does it have any bearing on how we view our evangelism, how we view our own walk? 
Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's an amazing passage. But it lays out Christ's statement of the standing he has, the claims he is making, and who he's making it to. Your relationship to this about Christ is your relationship to God. He says, if you honor the Son, you honor the Father. If you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. Simple. And this is what he has given to the Son, to have life and to have judgment. That he could give as he wills. Jesus Christ on the cross bought your debt. If that's you, say you had raised a, you know, run up your credit card debt with Chase Manhattan and you're slowly paying it off because, well, that's what credit cards are like. Some other bank comes along and buys that note. So now you own this other, owe this other bank. You owe Jesus Christ now. He bought your debt. He has life and judgment to give. Now, it's important <coughs> in this that he is granting life in two, or you might say there are two resurrections in this text. One is to the dead and one is to the buried. Like the dead and buried, you've heard of dead and gone, dead and buried. Most people think that the first group of dead, when he says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those that hear will live, that's us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we heard the voice of Christ, we believed, and were saved, and were, were given life. Those in the tombs, at the end of the passage, the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's the dead and buried. The actual, physical dead. They will all be raised. And a distinction will be made in the resurrection between the good and the bad. Now, 
I want you to think in terms of resurrection as a title for the judgment. It isn't a magic trick. You've got those kind of people coming back to life all the time in magic tricks like this, where we have whole shows on The Walking Dead, right? Resurrection, right? People walking around, eating people's brains. Making the dead reanimated. Frankenstein, right? Reanimate the dead. That's a trick. That's remarkable science if you could reanimate a dead person. And we're not just people who said, no, 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 it's, it's kind of like reincarnation. It's just, we're back alive again. Isn't that sweet? Well, it's not about sweetness. Being brought to life to give an account. Some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone gets raised. That's why it alarms Felix. Because he's talking about, well, it wouldn't be just if we didn't have, we didn't, this didn't get dealt with, and, you know, who's the one who's been living in all these sins? Oh, it's you, Felix. You're not self-controlled. Well, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to call in your chit. Can you um, pay up? Can you, what do you got? Are you able to stand before the judgment? It alarms Felix. It's not just, oh, I don't... I can't believe that the dead will ever come back to life. You know, when you start talking to people about just the magic trick of resurrection, they can reject that with any sensation of... But when you talk about the resurrection in reference to the last judgment, or the res- just the, what do you call it, uh, future judgment. Not just instant karma, not just, oh, you'll have a bad life if you do bad things. That's all the Sadducees believed in, that if you did bad things in this life, bad things happened to you in this life. So, Pharisees said, no, you can get away with all sorts of things in this life, but there's another life. There is a resurrection. Everyone will give an account. There is a future judgment. Consequently, self-control starts moving forward on the list of benefits for the Holy Spirit. What I want you to consider is how central those topics are to your presentation of the gospel. And to not skip over it because you don't never think of self-control. You should be thinking about justice. You should be thinking about self-control. And you should be thinking about what the Christian view of the judgment is, of resurrection. Excuse me. Now, one of the great gospel passages is in Acts 10. I have it here at the bottom of the left-hand side. St. Peter has been called by God to go preach the gospel to a Roman centurion. <coughs> It's interesting, both of these are Roman officials. A Roman centurion. And uh, um, this is, if you're, excuse me, Acts 10. Well, 
what's the number of this is quite a bit before Paul's the same town, Caesarea the Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea, Felix is the governor in Caesarea but the, the first passage we read is Acts 24 it's a number of years later uh, but we don't know what effect this Christian Roman military officer may have had at Caesarea or that some of the knowledges that Felix had about Christianity may have been through the Christian Roman soldiers but that's a side point whatever the case these, these Roman soldiers were interested in hearing Peter on this gospel business and Peter says you know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good, healing all who that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Okay? Very simple statement of the gospel story of the life of Christ, what Jesus did over the last few years. Then look at this in bold. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's what you were commanded to preach to people. That Jesus Christ, like it said in John 5, has been given all judgment. He's there to judge the living and the dead. His resurrection, his claim, his death, all those things are conspiring to be a moral thing. A moral quantity in your reference of Christianity to other people. We want it to be more of a psychological improvement. That Jesus is there to, so you won't worry so much. Jesus is there so that You'll be, get over your stress. Jesus is there to take the brokenness that you feel about whatever, being a twerp, uh, or others being a twerp to you. And he, he heals you. Well, I don't doubt that all those things are benefits in Christ, but we have made that the benefit, that something that is not what Peter says, you know, this is what he told us to do. Proclaim the judgment. Now you know perfectly well that this is not a church with what we call a uh, Turner burn, hellfire and damnation, you know, ringing the, you know, grabbing the heartstrings, getting a altar call. Have you, any of you been in an altar call before? I imagine some of you have. I grew up with them every Sunday, every service. Never happened here. It's not because, well, you, you always worry as a pastor, could I preach that powerfully? Would anybody come forward? Or would somebody walk the aisle just because they pity you as a pastor? Oh, he's going to look so foolish if no one goes forward. No, I don't, we're, not, we're not about that. We're about really actually thinking about what the center of our Christianity is. It is Jesus, God ticked 
at the world for their sins, sacrificing himself on a cross for their sins. And now, God is counting on this resurrection to pick everybody up, living and dead, stand up in front of him and say, okay, this is what you did. He is going to be, he's ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So at the same time, he says, God judges all things. He refers back to that truth in John 5, that if you're dead and you hear the Son, you will live. If you're dead now and you hear, if you, it was another passage, I forget where it goes, if we judge ourselves truly, we shall not be judged. Once we recognize the judgment, that recognition before death sets us free from the judgment because those who are good is to the resurrection of life. But I want you to not be, be as Christians afraid of the, of, of the resurrection. Not as Christians afraid of being brought back to life. You, maybe you may, you may have some things in your life that you ought to be afraid about. But I'm not asking that of you. I'm asking that we introduce self-control, justice, and the future judgment to our evangelism instead of solving people's emotional needs. You've got a bigger need than your emotional needs. Everybody has a bigger need. God is going to have words with us all. We need to think in terms of what was this for? that it helps you in your emotional needs, God bless it. We sometimes are a little leery about talking to an, an actual sinner in front of us about his sin. You do know, whatever he is, a robber, a liar, an adulterer, whatever it is, you could say, you have, you do know that there is justice. The reason this is wrong is because there is a judgment. They would like to even think that their sins are wrong. As long as there's not a judgment. Just kind of a definitional wrong. This is the problem with atheism. You can't have wrong without a judgment. It, it, it doesn't become wrong. It only manages to be an opinion. If there's no judgment, there's no accounting, no justice, no accounting for what you did. So you robbed the bank, you know it was wrong. And it's not just that it is defined as wrong, it becomes actually morally wrong only if the future judgment is there to make you account for your robbing the bank. That's just philosophic necessity. If you say to somebody, well, God doesn't like me robbing banks, then you have to say, is he going to do anything to you for robbing banks? Well, no then it's just his opinion. Then it's just his opinion. God's not going to do anything to you about robbing a bank. It's just God's opinion. He's a big guy with a lot of good opinions, but uh, that's, not, uh, that's not good enough to make it moral. These are things that if we... 
if we retool how we think of our presentation of the gospel, where you take this opportunity with Felix, you take the opportunity with Cornelius, and say, you know, this is what's central. God has made Jesus Christ judge of the living and the dead. Now what are you going to do about him dying? What is present in his resurrection? Forgiveness of sins is present in his resurrection. People actually are interested in forgiveness of sins if they realize how much it might cost them. And not just being on the wrong side of God's opinion about them. Self-control. Um, what are the, all the uh, ins and outs of it? Well, that's, that's many discussions, many cigars on the porch late at night. We'll talk about self-control. But that it's there, that it is central to the idea of moral government, and it plays the very centerpiece of the gospel, let's uh, not ignore it. But let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Very grateful. You've been good to us. We'd ask that we would turn to you to be good ourselves, that we take pains to maintain a clear conscience. We confess our sins, that we do righteousness, that we'd look to you as a God who represents the holy and will judge the living and the dead. Help us be proclaimers of that truth to the ungodly, that they might turn from their sins. They might at least be alarmed. In your son's name, amen.